Hey guys, welcome to Precision Nutrition's The Complete Fitness Professional Podcast. I'm Dr. John Berardi, co-founder of Precision Nutrition, and if you're not familiar with us, over the last 15 years, we've become the world's largest online nutrition, fitness, and health coaching company. Most interesting for health and fitness pros, we've turned the lessons learned coaching over 200,000 clients into a complete nutrition and health coaching system called the Precision Nutrition Certification. It's the industry's most recognized career-changing coaching system anywhere. In this podcast, which is a mix of recorded articles, interviews, and roundtable discussions, myself and my Precision Nutrition colleagues will coach you on growing your business, helping more people, and becoming a better coach. We'll help you become more than a personal trainer, strength coach, or nutritionist. We'll help you become the complete fitness professional. So let's get started. Really what we're gonna talk about now, uh, let me cue this up, is kind of science. But, but science with a twist, um, it's, it's science in a different way. It's, it's a different pathway to being a scientist. Uh, you know, I, as Krista said, I studied at Western and earned a PhD there, but I always kind of knew I, I wasn't going to be an academic. And that's the pathway, right? You go, you get a PhD, and you get a faculty position somewhere, and you work towards tenure track, and that's what you do. Um, but I, want, I questioned that process because I wasn't necessarily passionate about academics. I was passionate about the scientific process and the inquiry into knowledge and, and quite frankly, coaching. So uh, really what I, what I want to talk about today is, is how to do science as a practitioner because we think they're mutually exclusive. You're either the coach and you hate those stuffy scientists up in their white ivory towers, or you're the scientist and you're like, well, these coaches don't have very good evidence for what they're recommending, and maybe they produce world champions and whatnot, but nevertheless, I'd like to see the proof, okay? And we can never play nicely together, and I think that's bullshit. And I'd like to show you a different model for how we can. Okay. Um, ultimately, when we talk science, and our culture has a very strange reverence towards science, and, and probably because it's the best way of acquiring knowledge right now, or at least uh, the most reproducible way, but we still have this reverence, and we think scientists, and where we think it, it takes place or is, is this type of thing, right? They're the guys in the lab coats in these laboratories, and they have, you know, the, the lay public in particular thinks there's always beakers involved or something like that, right? So we're doing pouring solutions into separate containers, and uh, we have labs and maybe pocket protectors, and we're geeky laboratory people, and we isolate ourselves in the quest for knowledge, and we're unbiased, and we're objective, and our funding sources are all, uh, you know, the money's dropping from the heavens of good intentions, and that's science, okay? But I'd like to actually show you a brief video, and I know I don't have a lot of time, what is going on in this baby's mind? If you'd asked people this 30 years ago, most people, including psychologists, would have said that this baby was irrational, illogical, egocentric, that he couldn't take the perspective of another person or understand cause and effect. In the last 20 years, developmental science has completely overturned that picture. So in some ways, we think that this baby's thinking is like the thinking of the most brilliant scientists. What Christine did was use our blicket detectors, and what she did was show children that yellow ones made it go and red ones didn't, and then she showed them an anomaly. And what you'll see is that this little boy will go through five hypotheses in the space of two minutes. 
Okay, so he's just, his first hypothesis has just been falsified. Nothing. This one's like a hook, and this one's not. Okay, he's got his experimental notebook out. scientists will recognize that expression of despair, right? Always, because this needs to be like this, and this needs to be like that. Okay, hypothesis two. That's Now this is his next idea. He tells the experimenter to do this, to try putting it out over onto the other location. Not working either. Oh, because the light goes only to here, not here. Oh, the bottom of this box has electricity in here, but this doesn't have electricity. Okay, that's the fourth oh. hypothesis. It's lighting up! <laughs> so we need to put four. <laughs> so we need to put four on this one to make it light up, and two on this one to make it light okay, up. Okay, there's the fifth hypothesis. Now that is a particularly... That is a particularly adorable and articulate little boy, but what Christine discovered is this is actually quite typical. If you look at the way children play when you ask them to explain something, what they really do is do a series of experiments. This is actually pretty typical of four-year-olds. Okay, so why do I show you that? Um, uh, first of all, it's entertaining, but it also illustrates what science really is, and we've lost sight of that. We think science is the province of universities and laboratories, but science is everyday life. It's our children, our observation of the world, our interaction with things and facts and experiences. And that's what I want to talk about today. And so trying to be more like that little boy than my advisors in graduate school, I no, I teach at a few universities. I'm an adjunct faculty member, so I don't have any hate on for academics whatsoever. But uh, I do a ton of experiments outside of academia. We're very, very fortunate at Precision Nutrition, uh, quite frankly, in that we're a very profitable company. So we have money left over to do fun stuff, fun experiments, okay, um, that we can self-fund. All right? And we don't have any products to sell you, so we're not funding them to prove that our stuff works. It's just my curiosity as a human being and someone who's actually trained in experimental methods because I feel like I could design a pretty good protocol to determine what's happening in the world. So I'll just share with you one of my latest science projects. Okay? So you guys are familiar with alkaline water, yes? Uh, you hear all about it, right? In the natural health world, it's very popular. Drink this alkaline water, and uh, you will wear a halo. Your skin will be beautiful, and your offspring for generations will multiply with great fervor. Uh, I don't know what the claims are nowadays, but I just wanted to know if alkaline water actually did anything in the body in the first place. Does it actually impact urinary pH, which is a good surrogate marker for whole body alkaline or acid load? So uh, what I did was, you know, I, I uh, applied for a grant 
from the National Institutes of Health? No, I didn't do that, okay? What I did was I bought a notebook, I bought a $60 pH meter that's very, very reliable and accurate. I have a pen that was a couple dollars, and I reused one of the baby bottles that we would feed milk to our daughter when she was very young, which I would pee into every day and measure my urine, okay? So uh, I logged everything, I recorded it in my master spreadsheet, and I just had a couple of simple questions. So what did baseline pH look like in the first place? Urinary pH, first urinary pH uh, measurement of the morning. You know, you get up, you do your bathroom business, and you measure. Um, and then there's been some talk about green drinks impacting pH, so maybe I'll try that for two weeks. And then, of course, you have to go back to baseline, because if it did affect your pH, you want it to come back to normal. Uh, so two weeks was enough for baseline in every case, but if it would have uh, taken longer, I would have drawn it out longer. And then I tested potassium bicarbonate, which is the research standard for manipulating pH in the urine. All, all the current research trying to manipulate this thing uses potassium bicarb, so there's a great body of literature on that. Uh, baseline for two weeks and then we introduced the alkaline water. So I tested a few conditions, okay? And I have them plotted here. So, well, you know, we'll see that in, in this particular experiment, uh, me peeing in a little baby jar and measuring it, um, you know, greens didn't do very much compared to baseline. Potassium bicarb, as expected, produced a very marked response. And alkaline water produced about the same response as potassium bicarb. Now, you know, ultimately, really, we were, I was more alkaline with potassium bicarb and alkaline water. Now, I'm not trying to sell you uh, alkaline water or potassium bicarbonate here. I'm just trying to illustrate uh, the scientific method. I had a question, a very legitimate question. In fact, I thought that some of the claims of alkaline water were extremely overplayed, um, in case you didn't get that from my sarcasm earlier. Um, so I wanted to see, because here's the thing, this is a multi-million dollar industry selling you alkaline water, and I've never seen one piece of data to suggest that it even alters the pH of your urine. Whether this even matters or not is another question that I have. And, well, I don't really follow any traditional scientific rules, so I may test that next. Um, but, again, it's just an example. Um, now, now here I'm going to show you how something as goofy as me playing around like this can actually result in something that the scientific community might approve of. Because you, you know right now, any of you who've been trained in a research lab, yeah, there's a bunch of questions. I question your experimental design, Dr. Berardi, and a host of other things here. So um, we did this with our community. And this is uh, sort of research 2.0, folks. Uh, Precision Nutrition has a huge online community. We get hundreds of thousands of unique people coming to our site every month and 200,000 subscribe to a newsletter that we have. So I think, what a better way to recruit subjects than reach out to these people on our newsletter. I mean, I remember when I was a graduate student, I had to like cajole students to come to my experiments with money and stuff like that. And they'd usually come maybe hungover after a weekend of drinking. And uh, they're not the population I necessarily want to study. But I'm interested in the effects of certain things on healthy, active people. And who better to study than healthy, active people who subscribe to our newsletter? So we reached out to them and we said, hey, who wants to do an experiment? And we got, uh, I think for, in this particular protocol, it was 60 takers. And so we, we were actually looking at green supplements and acid-base status, like I looked at individually, in a larger cohort. Uh, because I was really curious about this. I didn't find anything in myself, but repeated reports about green 
drinks uh, improving acid-base status. And we actually ran this experiment through the web. All the experimental measures we did were things that people could self-report on. We actually sent them pH testers in the mail, and we sent them their experimental conditions. So if there was a supplement to take, we sent that to them through the mail. We never met these subjects. We, of course, got uh, consent to do the, the protocol. And uh, we actually published this in a scientific journal, if you can believe it. Okay, No affiliation with the university. Never met the subjects in person. It's science 2.0. Okay, it's different. We're liberating science from the laboratories and we're playing around with some new methods of collecting data. The cool part is the only limitation with this study was finance. We didn't have unlimited funds, but I could have had 500 subjects do this, which is impossible in a university type of setting. Okay? This one actually had a smaller number of people. I might show you one later with 60. But there were 17 men and women from our community. We did a baseline pH collection with no intervention. Weeks two and three, we did collection with green supplementation. And here was our finding in this particular protocol. So we found that uh, week one, uh, there, which was our baseline, here was the urinary pH. And we saw increases in week two and week three that were statistically significant. So people were more alkaline with greens. Now, I have to square this with my own personal results where I saw nothing change. And what we did when we dug into the data was 62% of the participants saw an increased pH, which is more alkaline, and 30, 29% saw a decreased pH, and 9 saw no difference. So now we have another question to ask, don't we, which is what is the difference between these people? Why do some people get a response and other people not? I don't know the answer to that yet, but it sounds like an interesting project I might want to try. Here's another recent project, uh, which we decided to publish in a very different way. Uh, this is, I had been hearing reports of this eggshell membrane stuff that people were selling to help with joint pain and saying it's better than like glucosamine, chondroitin, and some of the other alternative remedies. And so uh, I was like, eggshell what? And they were like, well, you know, when you hard boil an egg, you guys have hard boiled an egg in your life, and you peel it, the stuff that makes the egg cling to the, the, the shell cling to the egg, it's like almost impossible. That's the membrane, right? That little membrane is apparently rich in a host of things that help our joints. So I was like, okay, cool. Well, there's a product on the market. I'll buy some. I'll send it to subjects, and we'll test it. Okay, so we reached out to our community. We got 60 people. And we had baseline pain scores after joint challenges. So these were active people. And if they had knees that hurt, we made them do jump squats. And if they had elbows that hurt, we made them do explosive push-ups, because we're really nice like that. And uh, what we did was we had them rate their score before, immediately after, and 24 hours after this challenge. And then we had them take a supplement or a placebo, which we engineered, and, uh, and test to see what happened. Okay. And so what we found was there was a reduction in pain with eggshell membrane. I was like, oh, that's super cool. Uh, I haven't seen anyone study this yet. And we did it in next to no time at all with next to no cost at all. Okay. Now, some people may say, well, I don't like your science. Okay. And that's fine. But we have some data to start a conversation now, don't we? This is what we found. Try and replicate it. If you run a lab, go try and replicate it. I want you to because now we further the knowledge of this field, which is cool to me. And for publication-wise, instead of actually sending this one to a journal, like we did with our last one, we actually created our own online publication process, where you can actually go to our website and download the entire paper, which we wrote up exactly like a scientific journal. Here's why we did that. Because I have a suspicion that we could get about a thousand times more people reading it than if we would have buried it in a journal somewhere. And in, uh, we released it last week. 
I think we've had 5,000 people read it so far in one week, okay? Uh, I don't know if 5,000 people would have read it if we would have put it in a journal in all time. So it was just another little experiment. You're getting the trend, right? I like to experiment with things and measure stuff. Uh, here's another project that we're working on right now, and this is for the people who are curious about our coaching methodologies. Um, so our program is called Lean Eating, and I'm not here to sell that, but this is our coaching program for clients, and you can see the online interface that we use. You're asking about that online interface. So you can see we track everything. We track their habit completion, their workout completion, their assignments that we do. Uh, you can see their weight change over time, their girth change, measurements, they upload photos. It's everything sort of from this hub. And like I said, we have thousands of clients, and just to go down each thing, every habit that we might assign, and we talked about having new habits every two weeks, is pieced out, and we can show you their compliance to each. And you know, same with workouts, every workout that's assigned, and you just go down the list, all the assignments, you can look at their measurement data over time, and you can look at comparative photos over time. Okay, it's just all data. Okay, we're collecting data on the efficacy of our coaching program, and then you can see some of the markers here, and this is what our coaches see for each of their clients. So the study that we're working on next is using a subset of these people to look at genetic relationships and personality relationships between weight loss, okay? So we have this cohort. We have personality profiles that we use, and genetic screening is now cost-effective enough to be able to do it in a subset of our clients. So the goal here is that in the next couple of years, we'll have 1,000 of 10,000 people who've gone through 12 months of online coaching with us that we also have genetic data on and personality profile data on. Why would we want to collect such a thing? Well, because we want to look at things like, are there genetic correlates with weight loss? Are there genetic correlates with personality? Do these correlate with your ability to lose weight in a weight loss coaching program? These are things that have never really been explored in our field before, but we can do it now. We can do it now partially due to technology, and partially we're lucky because uh, I, I always say we kill what we eat, okay? So the clients in our program are paying to be coached because they want a weight loss intervention, okay? We also happen to get to do research from that, which is also very amazing. And now we can do exploratory work, exploratory work in this field that's never been done before. You talk about evidence-based medicine, and I, I know there was a symposium this weekend about how fundamentally we can get the medical field to respect us as a field. So they can refer to us and we can get uh, things like benefit coverage and stuff like that. Well, it's not gonna happen until we get evidence-based real practices, okay? And this is what we wanna work towards. Uh, to share another little project, Krista mentioned it. Intermittent fasting, you hear all about this nowadays. What is this intermittent fasting thing where people, it flies in the face of everything we've been telling people for the last five or 10 years. Eat every few hours, graze instead of gorge. Well, there's this whole community of people saying, no, 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 if you fast for 16 to 20 hours a day and eat all of the rest of your meals within a narrow window, you will actually get a whole bunch of health outcomes that are desirable, and you may also lose weight much more weight and control body weight in a different way. Now, I didn't know if I believed them or not, so I said, well, why don't we start with me? So I did a little experiment, and we published it again, free online in this free ebook format. So here's the different interventions. I tracked myself for six months. I recorded every workout, every morsel of food I ate. I planned it all in advance. Don't try this at home, kids, unless you're ready for this. Um, I tracked daily weight. I tra so you can see this is a two-week weight plot. I tracked weight over time, so intermittent fasting did reduce my weight in a positive way. I tracked blood measures. I even tracked photographs before and after photos of myself. 
okay? So I did get a little bit leaner. Um, and what, anyway, what was the goal of all that? Well, I mean, ultimately see what this intermittent fasting thing was all about. Because if we don't have any evidence, we can speculate wildly. And usually we speculate wildly based on bias. If I like to eat five small meals a day, and someone tells me this intermittent fasting thing where you eat one meal a day and don't eat the rest of the day is better, I say, I, well, I don't want to believe that. And then you show me a picture of someone who got leaner doing that. And I say, yeah, well, they do look leaner, but I bet their blood work's all messed up. Now I can show you some blood work. So again, I just wanted to explore in N equals one. Now the interesting thing was I got a call from Columbia University and some researchers there want to lock a whole bunch of subjects in a metabolic chamber and test out some of this stuff, which is great uh, for two reasons. One, we start to validate some of these N equals one experiments in a larger cohort. And two, I don't have to be the one sitting in the chamber for four days because that sounds like it would suck. So now as fitness professionals, how can you do some of this stuff? I mean, most of the stuff I'm doing is like on a shoestring budget, okay? So I look at sort of, there's high-tech fitness tools that are out there nowadays to do this testing. Have you guys seen this body media device? How you put it on your upper arm and it's supposed to track movement, it's got an accelerometer on it, it's supposed to track sweat rates and a whole host of other things to determine your activity levels. And there's the whole online platform. So it tells you how many calories you burned in a day. If you plug in what you ate, it generates what you consumed. It actually tells you how much sleep you got at night based on movement, a whole host of interesting things, again, that you can track and use as data. Some people use it as a weight loss intervention, but for me, I like to use it as an experiment. So what cool things can we generate? Uh, this next one, meal snap. Anyone seen this one yet? So with an iPhone, you can take a picture of your freaking meal, and this thing tells you what you just ate and how many calories were in it, okay? Food logs? That was so 2005, okay? Here, like, someone, all they have to do is take a picture of their meal, and that's it. They can send you the three or five meals they ate today, and all the data is pre-generated. It's pretty amazing. Uh, here's one, body comp analysis, okay? I have an ultrasound device. Anyone seen the ultrasound devices? It looks like a little flashlight with a USB plug that you plug in your computer, and instead of doing skin folds or you know, some other method requiring a DEXA, you can use this ultrasound method at the same sites that you would use. So it's Jackson Pollock formula, whatever formula you're using, uh, and so it's kind of non-invasive because some clients don't necessarily feel comfortable being pinched right, doing body comp analysis, and this is well validated and reproducible uh, because the experimenter error, which is the biggest problem with body comp analysis, right, you have to do like 10,000 of these things to get good at them, and if you have someone else try it, it's different, it's, it's taken, off the, taken off the table. So this is kind of another cool thing. Uh, in addition to measuring the thickness of skin, it takes pictures just like a normal ultrasound. So when my wife was pregnant, I was always like, hey, let's see the baby. She didn't think it was that funny, but I thought it was neat. Um, MedGems, another device, uh, measures uh, resting metabolic rate. So you don't need a full metabolic cart. You just put this thing in your mouth, you breathe for a minute or two into it, and it gives you a very close approximation, very, very close, to what you would get with a $30,000 metabolic cart, okay? Uh, Zio, sleep, okay, this is a big thing. Andy talked about it, and you all know how important sleep is. This is uh, an EEG, so you wear it like a headband when you go to bed at night, and it actually tracks brainwave activity, and you can look at a person's quality of sleep overnight, okay? Very cool device, it's very affordable, and you just, it can become part of your testing and assessment toolkit, okay? So you can do your own science, all right? 
And then there's low-tech tools. So you're like, hey, John, that's great, but what you just showed me, I'd probably have to come out of pocket 10,000 to build my mini laboratory. What about other stuff? Well, there's low-tech stuff. I mean, with a stopwatch tape measure, weigh-scale calipers, a camera, some weight on a bar, a mood scale, a pain scale, pH strips, and a thermometer, you can test almost anything that you want to test. And at least get some preliminary data that's worth opening up to conversation. Because the fact of the matter is this, nowadays, how does science functionally get done? Not, not by scientists in labs. What direction does science go in? I want you guys to answer this. Who pushes science in the direction it goes in? Who? Say it out loud, please. Funding sources. People with funding push science in the direction that they want it to go. Okay? How many people are, have masters, PhDs, worked in laboratories here? Okay, a host of you guys. You guys know, you wait for the funding. And if an organization wants to fund, whether it's a third-party company or whether it's a funding group, that's the direction you go. Uh, my thing is, lots and lots of knowledge is missed that way. The important questions that we have, let's say in fitness or strength and conditioning or nutrition, aren't getting answered because there isn't funding for it yet. Well, why are we waiting for funding? Why not just use the scientific method in our practice and start the conversation? So what is the scientific method? And what are little kids doing when they apply the scientific method? They're asking an interesting and testable question. Does this supplement reduce joint pain? Okay, it's just a question. Then you make the question simple to answer. Okay, so this question might be the supplement either reduces pain or not in people with pain, okay? Then you choose a valid measurement, all right? So we, for this particular study, we used a validated joint pain questionnaire, okay? Control the critical variables, at least the ones you know about, and this is a whole other subject for another day for me because I feel like science is very limited in controlling variables because we can only control the ones we know about. And I guarantee we don't know about all of them yet in any particular experiment. Then start with yourself. See what happens. I feel like we miss that one all the time. Talk to any principal investigators on a project. Did you try this first? Um, well, that's not really my role. Uh, okay, that's cool. I feel like it should be. N equals one. Let's get started there. See what happens and refine the protocol based on that N equals one. It's a pilot. We call it a pilot, but man, there's nothing like being the principal investigator on a project and you being the one in the N equals one. You fix the problems really quickly that way, okay? Then collect adequate baseline data, try it for a few weeks without the intervention, and then try the experiment. And so the big question is, if you're not going to be a scientist, why bother with all this stuff in the first place, okay? Why, why, if you're a coach, if you're a personal trainer, why would you do any of this in the first place? Well, I've got some things on the board, and maybe these are just specific to me, but aren't you curious? Don't you wonder if the stuff that you're reading in magazines and books, Gray Cook's movement, okay, Andy O'Brien's writings, Ryan's articles, don't you wonder if they're really accurate or if these guys just made some shit up? Honestly, you gotta wonder that sometimes. I read some stuff and I go, man, I don't know how you would test that. It feels like he made some shit up. <laughs> so aren't you curious a little bit? Or do you want to have to sit at the foot of gurus and oracles the rest of your life to know whether the advice you're giving clients is accurate, valid, reproducible? What else are you doing? 
I, the thing is, I worked as a personal trainer my entire way through school. I have loads of experience in the trenches as a personal trainer. And after the first couple years where you're defining your methodologies and how to work with clients and stuff like that, it gets to be kind of routine. So this kind of stuff is awesome. It spruces it up a little bit, you know? And really, ultimately, what will your contribution be? Okay? Because I feel like not only am I satisfying this perverse curiosity that I have when I do these experiments, I feel like I'm actually contributing and moving knowledge forward, okay? And it's something that I just, for whatever reason, take a tremendous amount of pride in. I like to know that I was able to contribute to starting conversations and moving knowledge forward in a positive way. Even if you don't like any of the experiments that I did, and some of you won't, some of your advisors will think it's bullshit, it's quackery or whatever. But that's okay, because we can open up a conversation, and I'm sharing with you some data, and I publish it all openly. And then you can decide what to do from there. You can say I'm a crank, but see, you can't refute what I'm saying with evidence unless you do an experiment yourself. And I'd love to have those challenges and duels. Um, if you guys wanna, I'm gonna wrap it up there, but if you wanna read more about our studies and maybe even have the chance to participate, because if you're on our list, you'll be invited to do experiments from time to time, come and visit us at Precision Nutrition. And that's really all I have to say about that. Thank you for listening to me today, and that's the end. Okay, everyone, that's it for this week's edition of Precision Nutrition's The Complete Fitness Professional Podcast. For more information about how to become the complete fitness professional yourself and for some awesome free nutrition and coaching resources, come visit us on the web at www.precisionnutrition.com. You could also visit us on Facebook or on Twitter at InsidePN. Talk to you next time.